Courtney and I have never met in person. Instead, we've connected through virtual meetings. We quickly realized that Betty and I enjoy brainstorming together about ministry, faith, and life, and that we have a lot to learn from one another. A virtual time together has felt similar to sitting down with a friend over a cup of coffee, something that feels so foreign since the start of the pandemic. We found ourselves talking about life, theology, and asking all the big questions without ever having to leave with any answers. So we decided to turn this cup of coffee experience into a podcast. We're building a platform that invites others to ask the big questions we don't always feel comfortable asking. We'll use wonder as a tool to dig us out of these questions and help us reimagine our ways of doing ministry. So grab a cup of coffee or beverage of your choice. We'll let wonder percolate together. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Percolating Wonder with Court Von Lindern, that's me, and my friend and colleague, Betty Wynn. Hey, well, welcome everyone. I Before we even start, I just wanna say, yay, Court, I'm so excited for you and your upcoming graduation from um, seminary and um, that's super excited. And um, I hope that you'll have time to celebrate and um, yeah. Way to go. So everyone out there celebrate with court. Yeah. Thanks, Betty, and thanks all. And yeah, I'll have my Master of Divinity, which means I'm sure I'll have some super mysterious powers after that. Um, if not, then I'm asking for a refund. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've always thought the term Masters of Divinity always always kind of funny. Like, you know, how can you have mastery in divinity but here we are and yeah congratulations and um we're so blessed to have you um in you know this capacity and the ministries before you so yeah well um in preparation for our conversation today um i was just sharing with court a book um I'm reading from a, from a united methodist clergy um he is reverend tyler um, sit. And his recent book is Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. And one of the things that have really stayed with me recently while reading um, was around centering marginalized voices and that um, mar historically marginalized individuals and communities have wisdom and no solutions. And we need to listen to, learn from, and follow their lead, right? And um, I think that um, historically and currently, the church has kind of followed this model of we know what's right, and if you want to be a part of it, come along instead of learning from and seeking wisdom from others. Um, and so I'm just going to read a quote, and um, hopefully we can have a conversation about it. So the quote is from page 44, and it says, this is where centering marginalized voices enters the conversation. When we center marginalized voices, we start to hear what type of action would be necessary for them to have a restored standing in the community. That is, marginalized voices know the path towards reconciliation. God gives marginalized people, not their oppressors, the knowledge of what repair looks like for the harm done. 
So I just wanted to, yeah, lift that up and something that's been on my mind that's been percolating for me um, and how it ties into the work I'm doing. And then what does it mean for us as, uh, for, for local churches as well? Yeah. I appreciate how you, how you brought up in this conversation uh, to pre like prefacing the quote, how in church we have this culture of knowing what we think is right. And I think as you had said, you can either get on board with it or like and participate, or you can, you can not, and you can then not be a part of the community. And what I think is most fascinating about that statement in context of what it means to follow uh, those who exist in identities that have been historically marginalized and are most likely con continue to be marginalized in modern day. Um, what I think is most interesting about bringing that up is that this, I feel as though this idea of like we, like the church, capital C, like know what's right, so follow us, comes from the, like the faith of like the dominant culture, like within Christianity. And so and I'm, I don't know if I'm like, wording this as eloquently as I would like to try, uh, but thinking, you know, we spend so much time like in in our doctrine or dogma, depending on how you want to phrase it, um, in our scriptures and our faith and our theologies. And we decide like from our experience, our perspective, dominant perspective and point of view, that this is the way that like, this is what God is saying um, in these texts. Like this is the word, this is the way, and this is how it will be done. So then when that is challenged by historically marginalized identities and people, um, we don't, like capital C church, don't want to listen to that, engage with that. Um, and we continue to participate in that marginalization. And uh, yeah, so I don't know, I just thought that that was interesting that you brought it up. And so um, I'm curious, cause I haven't cracked open this book yet and you sent it to me mm -hmm. as a gift and it is on my summer reading list that I'm looking forward to. Um, but I'm curious, like from your perspective, what, yeah, how that, how that works in the church, um, you know, mm -hmm. where, where we do kind of have this mentality of it's mm -hmm. our way or the highway, um, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. I think for me, like, I do feel that the big C church or Big C Christianity has something to offer. So I do believe that as a, you know, as a person of faith, as a United Methodist, I believe in a God, a deity, um, divine um, creator also offers hope, peace, love, joy. Um, you know, all these things that, you know, in the Christian year around Advent, we talk about, um, around Easter, we talk about. So there, there is something about that. Like there's this something to receive grace, you know, uh, um, but, but I think what I've been grappling with is Big C Church and has this mentality of, we have this mentality of fixing, changing, and it, I think it comes out of this desire to, to be right and feel comfortable that we're able to do something for others, for our comfort and our feeling good and that we're here to, um, to, to, to do good and, and, and to fix. 
Now that in itself is not necessarily bad, right? I mean, we, we have to be good and we have to be kind and we, we, we need to share and be compassionate and generous. But again, like, are we holding um, ourselves accountable? Our motives, um, which may have started out pure, then, you know, hijacked along the line somewhere. Um, so, yeah. So, so how how are we um, not just like this consumer? I guess that's another term that's been coming up. Like churches pumping out stuff, doing stuff, and and attendees are consumers. You know, church member consumers. Um, I think I mentioned this, I don't know if it's um, on, on one of our um, podcasts or a different conversation, but literally part of our church history was like, you buy a church pew so that you have a pew to sit on, right? And so, so how do we shift from doing, consuming, um, fixing, teaching in a way that then, um, then, then distracts us from being truly in community, right? Which requires deep listening and listening and following the lead of historically marginalized people, which, which is what Jesus did, right? And so I guess that's what's been on my mind, yeah. I feel like you just do a lot to think about. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm over here and I'm letting it prickly and I'm absorbing it and I'm just... <laughs> I can't uh. recall everything I said, but... I guess there's been a lot of things on my mind around this. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a different way of being community that I, you know, I was so used to uh, and still continue to be a part of. And again, there's nothing like the faith community that I'm a part of now, the faith communities that I've been a part of um, have shaped me and formed me. But also now, you know, as I'm continuing to learn, it's like, Mm, yeah, um, nuance and changing who are we listening to? Um, how does it inform our own faith journey personally and with others? And um, yeah, and, and what does Big C Church really mean? I know that for decades we've talked about church is not the building. Um, but yet here today with pandemic, how, how much we have clung to the building, like we can't go to the building and it's very upsetting and it's caused a lot of um, pain within the church around these types of conversations. So again, a breaking open for me, I guess, um, in some ways to think about what a love of community is or church or um, yeah, what, what that really means. You bringing up the idea that, you know, for so long we've held on to this idea that church is a building uh, mm. is not the experience that I've had. Um, mm. and, I, and I shouldn't say it's not the experience I've had in church. I think in a sense it has been some of that ex experience I've had in church, but working with youth and young people uh, and especially like counseling church camps there's so much more of an emphasis on that church is not a building um, coming from mm -hmm. these young people. They're very much like, no, church is like, church is the people that make it up. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a year uh, where there was a, there was a chance that the church camp on Flathead Lake was going to be sold, or that was like a conversation that was happening. And 
Um, of course, if you talk about selling a camp and then the people attending the camp hear about it, they're not, they're never happy about it, both the youth mm-hmm. and alumni and things like that. Like that's mm-hmm. understandably like a, a hot topic. Yeah. Um, but I remember when that came up and, you know, we had to have these really hard conversations with our kids. They didn't sell the camp, but that conversation didn't go anywhere. Um, so for folks listening, like all's good there. Um, not, start, not trying to start some more rumors or anything like that. Um, yeah. And so when that came up, though, we had to have these hard conversations with our youth coming to the camp and talking about, you know, like, what is it that like makes it makes this place so special? Because yes, like it's on the shores of Flathead Lake. Like there's something like generally like spiritual about like the area that mm-hmm. we're in. And that's really powerful. But mm-hmm. if we couldn't have camp here, what like what could camp be like? What could camp look like? And like, mm-hmm. why do you actually like really come here? And at the end of the day, their responses were, well, so I can hang out with my friends that I don't get to see mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little bit more of a tangent um, from kind of have like what we're talking about here as far as, uh, you know, how we, how we be in community and beloved community mm-hmm. with one another. Mm-hmm. And outside of a building, if we think that church isn't a building, and maybe then if it is the people, um, you know, how can we build that community of people that mm-hmm. truly reflects the ministry of Christ um, mm-hmm. that each of us have been called into? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And when you were talking to, you kind of brought up again, this desire um, in church to be right and for us to fix things and change things and to kind of bring all of this back to, um, you know, what does it look like to change things from or by following those whose identities are within the margins, um, margins of sorts. How do you think we can or what does it look like in your opinion and perspective to uh, to follow these people, um, those of us yeah. on the margins? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I think this is where I need to name the fact that I'm not serving within the local church, right? And I think that, and I've mentioned this as I have been in conversation with clergy and laity is that, um, that I recognize that I'm not in the local church kind of at a location doing this work, right? And so there's something perhaps easier in the sense that I can say things and kind of dream things and have that privilege of doing that, right? Um, So I just wanna name that. But I do feel like part of this is allowing ourselves to, recapture the ability to imagine a new way. Like, um, yeah, a holy imagination of, um, I think curiosity and being creative, which is something that does not come natural to me, I will say. But what would it mean for us to kind of just um, start from scratch and imagine a new way? Then I think, then um, then don't, we don't have to feel um, stuck. It gets us out of stuckness and um, entangledness and say, hey, how can we reimagine a new way of doing this or being? Um, now, is it, first of all, it's hard, I think, um, at least for me. And we are a part of systems. <laughs> whether within the local church, 
the conference or our the system of our state and government federal systems that causes a lot of hiccups along the way right but but if we're willing to be creative i think then we're we're thinking oh how can we how can we impact systems think of new ways of um, engaging with systems and changing systems along the way um, so you and I, we have talked about, you know, how do we support local churches in their discernment of creating more inclusive spaces, right? And so it could be something as much as um, rethinking our budgets, you know, like we've always had these budget lines, for example, but what if we rethink about our budget? So um, one of the things at the conference level is like one thing I've been talking about is, um, wow, we, we need to have a budget to consider interpretation and, and, and um, and translation and language accessibility, you know, that has never been a part of our budget. So again, it could be something like that, imagining, oh my gosh, we're gonna, you know, rethink our budget, for example. Um, it could mean um, reimagining our space to make sure that everybody has accessibility to facilities and worship space or whatnot, right? But then if we think about historically marginalized people and we think of who are the leaders can we think outside the box um, and think uh, um, creatively of, you know, or if we think about um, credentialing, can we, you know, be creative and have a holy imagination? Um, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful <laughs> or answering your question, but for me, it's kind, kind of like, okay, are we willing to, um, set aside some of the the norms and just have a space where we can just be creative, which I think sometimes we 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 don't um, create space for. Um, yeah, and I'll just say this and then I need to be quiet because I think I'm just kind of like thinking out loud and it's not making coherent sense. But, you know, recently I was just scrolling on social media and um, there was a post, which I think has come in different memes and different um, ways of saying it is basically, are we willing to willing to try new things, even if it means failure, right? And, and failure means that we've tried, right? Even in my, and so all that to say is like courage, creativity, creating space to think of new ways. Um, yeah, totally just thinking out loud, yeah. So thank you for, for listening in and friends. Thank you for kind of going along this journey of thinking out loud with me. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing what's what's been percolating. And I'm I'm over here just like absorbing all this, nodding along, like, yes, yes, like uh, like this is what I want to see more of in church. Um, I hope people listening in are, you know, finding points of agreements and imagination and curiosity in this conversation as well. And, and I have to add to, um, you know, Betty, you mentioned you're not serving at a local church. I'm also not serving at a local church, nor have I really ever of the past, like a youth director position. Um, so I've been, so I've been in local churches, um, of course, and have tried to, uh, and have been, not tried to, but have been involved in leadership in some capacity. And so that is an important thing to bring up because I do think it is a lot harder in context of serving a local church and working in leadership, um, especially as a clergy person. A clergy person can't 
can't do it all. Um, and oftentimes, you know, with when we're in a system where there's new appointments all the time um, and you're not in a community for, sometimes you're not in a community for long periods of time past maybe like a year or two, depending, um, it can be really challenging to build the necessary relationships that are needed, in my opinion, to make this change and even bring some of these into conversation. And I know that something that comes up often um, in my work is if I'm working with maybe a clergy person or some folks from a congregation that's a little bit more conservative or traditional, um, however you want to phrase that, and just might not think that prioritizing inclusion for LGBTQ people is important for them. Um, what comes in that is trying to like think about and engage that conversation of how can, again, how can we rethink that, right? How can we consider the ways in which we might be able to make this a, a priority um, without having to sacrifice other areas of our ministry, right? So I think what happens is when we get in these conversations, people think, well, it's not important to talk about anti-racism. It's not important to talk about LGBTQ inclusion. It's not important to talk about accessibility because these people aren't here or we have to, you know, we want to focus on um, addressing houselessness in our community, uh, feeding the hungry, like whatever it is. Like we want to serve people in a different way, which is great, except what happens when you are working in these capacities and doing this kind of mission work and you engage people of color and you engage LGBTQ folks, you engage people with disabilities. Um, how do you how can you be prepared to like be in mission and community um, with folks that may be in need of or accessing your services? And I know from um, an LGBTQ lens and a bit of a trans lens that sometimes trans folks experiencing houselessness don't always get the help that they need because a lot of homeless shelters and things like that either don't have policies that include them or they're nervous about going um, for fear of experiencing microaggressions or macroaggressions. Um, even more direct uh, transphobia or homophobia. And so how can we, again, reimagine the way that like we be in mission and not in a way that's, you know, fixing or changing these people or um, helping them from like that white savior complex kind of standpoint, but how can we prioritize these conversations alongside of everything else that we're doing and knowing that, that it all like intersects at the end of the day, right? And when you mentioned um, that idea of even at a conference level, like rethinking our budgets, that's one of the, that's one of the likes to me, like the first places where we get to think about, um, you know, what are we truly prioritizing here? And I know um, at our conference, we're talking about wanting to become an anti-racist uh, conference. And I've been in some of these conversations and I'm positive you have as well. But for me, that looks like if we're saying we're going to be an anti-racist conference, how do we put the money behind that that says, like, we are prioritizing uh, people of color in our community? How are we prioritizing um, more of our multiracial churches and multicultural churches um, who might not get as much uh, funding for various reasons, whether that's based on membership or whatever? Um, and budget stuff is not my, like, forte, so I'm not trying to make up, like, how we do budget things, but um, just knowing that sometimes these congregations don't always have the same uh, the same funds to work with as some of our larger white dominated mm -hmm. congregations. And so when I think of like, when we rethink our budgets, when we rethink our spaces, these are like bare minimum, like spots where we get to say, we're gonna prioritize people by saying we value you and like that value, we're gonna stick a dollar amount mm -hmm. on it 
it's a very capitalist way of thinking, but um, at least in that context, we're going to start making sure like some of your needs are met from a financial standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. that's my word vomit back at you. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I agree. And, and I, and I, you know, one thing that made me think about how our, I'm, I'm grateful our conference and one of the things I have named in conversations is, um, you know, you're uh, supporting and creating a position like yours, you know, and that, as one step, right. And I, I, I go back to invitation to brave space where Mickey Scott, Mickey Scott Bay Jones says, you know, we all can start somewhere and can, can we, can all of us do better have robust funding and but um the invitation for local churches too is we all can start somewhere right a conference can start somewhere and 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 so how can we be courageous enough and bold enough and creative enough to to on-ramp somewhere right um the other tension the nuance and i guess this is always the case right of being community is how much time, right? We can't do, we can't just like be on on-ramp forever, right? And so, so uh, we have, so, so there, there is time to, for everybody to start somewhere, every local church, every conference somewhere, yet we can't wait forever. Historically marginalized communities have been waiting forever, right? So that, being mindful of that tension has, some, again, something that's on my mind as well. And as you were speaking, I, I wrote down time, like this work takes time, relationship building, listening to one another deeply um, takes time, the work takes time. Um, and our in our dominant culture, and I think we've talked about this before too, is efficiency. Um, we have systems and so we put people in place because you know it's easier and more efficient to do that, right? Um, so what does it mean to really carve out time to to re, you know, be creative, to reconsider, to reimagine that with the tension of our, our siblings have been waiting for a long time as well, right? And so all of that, <laughs> all of that. And then on top of that too, I just thought about is during pandemic, right? Like it's hard, but perhaps it's also an invitation. I, I've been encouraged listening and hearing from churches who through the pandemic have um, have shifted and changed in ways that they never thought they would and, and lived into new ways of being, whatever that is. But but then also, yeah, there's challenges in, in, in how do we build relationships well during pandemic? How do we create change or make decisions well? Um, so yeah, things things to consider for sure. That mention of time, I think, again, is so important because you're right, like it's, it takes a lot of time to do any of this. And I think anyone working in a position or community where you're trying to change systems, right? Um, I feel bold enough to say that I think anyone working in those is realistic that we're never going to see in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still something like hopeful about that, like mm-hmm. as like people of the margins, however you want to describe that, um, knowing that some of my identity like is in that as well. There's still something hopeful in like knowing uh, that I might not see this in my lifetime yet, like I can still do something about it now that hopefully, and for me, this comes back to recognizing like what my queer ancestors had worked for 
Mm-hmm. Like, hopefully things will be better. 10 years ago, I don't think I really like even knew or understood anything much about gender identity past like binary transgender identity. Um, and even mm-hmm. that it was like very limited for myself. And now like I'm seeing kids come out at younger ages and have like a bit like, not like a full grasp necessarily because our identities are complex, they're always changing, but just having like a better like grasp on like themselves as individuals and what sexuality and gender like means to them in that conversation. And that's not something that I think realistically would have happened even 20 years ago, um, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, definitely not 50 years ago. Mm. And so recognizing that there's like, and my professor, Dr. Leith said this um, in class yesterday about like, she had mentioned like, when I say I'm queer, I'm committed to futurity. And that Mm kind of stuck with me as this like thought of like, in context of this conversation as well, like there's this commitment to futurity of like things being better in the future that people of the margins were so committed to because we believe it's possible. And it is possible, like when we engage with that curiosity and creativity. And so to those who are kind of in this place of we don't have time, which I agree, like we're not we're not gonna see the full like fruit of this in our lifetime. But those who are still stuck in this, um, including myself, this place of we don't have time. I don't know where to start. Like, I, I just can't make this a priority right now. I think my challenge to that, just to throw one out there, would be to just start somewhere um, yeah, and look at like where you can start. Like, is it in the budget? Is it in, um, you know, how you hold conversation with friends and family? Um, is mm-hmm. it... Is it the like books and movies that you watch with your kids? Um, you know, mm-hmm. taking a look at like who, like what characters are in these? Are we like exposing our family to um, diverse stories and experiences? Um, yeah. Yeah. So while we might not have time, we do have time to do something, even yeah. if we feel like it's not gonna. Absolutely. Only in our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I think that line, and forgive me, um, friends, if I'm quoting it wrong, but from the invitation to brave space from Mickey Scott Bay Jones, we all have the right to start somewhere, um, I think is is the quote. Um, and and that, that is a conviction of me. Like, what does, you know, um, my identity as, you know, an Asian American woman, that's straight and have lots of privilege as well. Like I have to start somewhere too, you know, like and, and allyship, what does that look like? You know, and yeah, I have to start somewhere. Um, and and um, I, I don't remember exactly where this uh, came up. And um, I wanna say it was when um, Debbie Irving um, did a presentation. So at Debbie Irving is the author of Waking Up White but we had a conversation with her and she did a presentation. And um, I think it was in that that conversation when the idea of, um, in that context, right? People of color, um, but we can say perhaps historically marginalized communities. It's something powerful for us to witness um, dominant culture or white siblings, um, again, specific to that context, doing the work there's something about witnessing um, others uh, joining in the work and not feeling alone, 
um, and for those who are historically marginalized, um, when we feel overwhelmed and tired to know that that others are along the journey, right? And so I think it's the same in the church work. Um, I think of clergy who are spread thin and exhausted. Um, um, how can we build uh, capacity for, um, no, we, we all can start somewhere and we're gonna do this journey together. And it may look different for pe different people and different churches, um, but we, we all have, um, that invitation to start somewhere. Um, and I think, you know, and now again, I'm, I'm kind of in thinking out loud mode, so forgive me, Court, um, but it goes back to that pressure or that, that culture or that dominant culture of efficiency, not, you know, having to defend, you know, depend on others, those narratives that, or I think we've talked about this too, in ministry, we have to sacrifice ourselves and Again, um, those those things could be noble and values, but at the same time, they could be hiccups and and uh, prevent us from, um, yeah, living into community, being creative, or listening to other voices, or following other people's lead, right? Because hey, if I if I have an MDiv, right, I'm, I'm going to use myself as as an example. If I'm an, have an MDiv and I'm in this role in the conference it's only fair that I do everything, right? And, and then that wisdom comes from me and I will lead. Yeah, I have responsibility in this role, but at the same time, I need to be reminded that wisdom comes from other siblings and that I can follow the leadership of other siblings and center their voices. And yeah, I know it sounds kind of like, um, you know, uh, cotton candy and happy and ideal, but I, that's what kind of helps me stay centered at times is thinking of what might be. I think that's where my imagination and curiosity goes when things get rough. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at <laughs> in this conversation. And um, yeah, going back to what we talked about at the beginning and what Taylor said, have lifted up is central centering marginalized voices and that um, our siblings um, have wisdom and can lead us and um, that just makes me smile and I'm so deeply grateful and I I want to continue learning yeah I love it <laughs> I love all of it yeah no and I think yeah, I appreciate you mentioning, you know, like what, what keeps you centered in all of it. Because if we don't have something that centers us, like this work isn't, I don't want to say this work isn't worth it. This work is always worth it. But when you lack that, like whatever grounds you or what centers you in it, mm -hmm. it, it can tear you apart um, <laughs> to be a little, that's not dramatic, just to be blunt about it. Um, and so I think knowing you know, what's your cotton candy? What's, <laughs> what's sweet about it? What keeps you in the work yeah. is really important in order yeah. to get it done. And I think, um, and that too goes for folks, myself included, um, goes for folks with privilege of recognizing like, like for me, like as a white person, it's really easy to check out of like conversations about racial, ju racial justice and doing work about, um, on topics of racial justice and communities 
so what is it like if and when those conversations feel exhausting and that work feels exhausting to me finding something that's going to ground me in it and recognize that like I can check out but my brother sister siblings of color don't have that option because they live it every day um yeah it's like that to me makes it more important to stay in those conversations and to stay in it and like comes back to that centering, that grounding mm-hmm. is needed for all of us. And so, yeah, I think, yeah. I think ending, ending on that cotton candy that you brought to us, <laughs> Betty, <laughs> might, might yeah. just be our, the place to, yeah. place to stop. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just like kind of sitting in that space. And so with gratitude, with gratitude, um, so yeah, thanks for spending time this morning, Court, um, to percolate together. And um, yeah, and thanks, friends, for joining us and and percolating with us and um, considering what's uh, how this might relate to you and uh, your um, community, uh, whether it's a local church or not. Um, but um, here we are, percolating together and continuing the journey, right? Here we are. Yep. And for those listening in, um, you can find us on Facebook now. We're on Facebook. Yeah. We're up and rolling. Uh, so give us a like on Facebook or at Percolating Wonder. Um, yeah, stay tuned. We'll, we'll, we'll get some things happening for folks to engage and continue the conversation. So yeah, thanks for percolating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Percolating Wonder. Be sure to like and subscribe or follow us depending on what podcast platform you're listening on. If you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And remember, tell your friends.